0: Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. And our title today is God's Revelation that Burns Through Racism, Part 2. Actually, Part 2, last week was a Part 1, God's Revelation that Burns Through Racism. And uh, it's a message on actually Ephesians chapter 3 that I'm going to be sharing with you. I believe very much that we as a church have an enormous destiny before God because Scripture says that. And Uh, and uh, that in these days in which there's been this global awakening around the issue of racism, at least for many, uh, my great concern is that we as the Church of Jesus Christ seize that moment and actually integrate this into our discipleship in a way that's meaningful, sustainable, and transforms our character and our witness to Jesus uh, around the world. And so if we're going to bring that kind of a long-term change, we must be gripped by the revelation of god in scripture and the more i'm gazing in questions and webinars on the topic around what's what's gone on around you know racism and racial injustice uh i realize how few have a vision uh of god's vision of what the church is meant to be and as a church that transcends uh race culture gender and class uh and then our participation to join that and so today um you're going to hear a message from ephesians chapter 3 and uh, this incredible text of Paul who who expounded on the implications of the gospel. Paul couldn't talk about the gospel and the blood of Jesus that was shed for us at the cross for our salvation without talking about the implications of this of, for God's creation of a church uh, that transcends nations, social, racial, economic, gender, cultural barriers. And, and, uh, and he gets this great text in Ephesians 3, uh, 9 and 10, and you're going to hear it, which is, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, and that God's a plan was. We're not little, little churches that are insignificant and irrelevant and and trivial, but but are the church has actually cosmic significance to powers and principalities. Um, we that our witness, our life together, our countercultural existence actually reaches unseen realms and. And we are a reminder to the powers of principalities that Jesus has defeated them at the cross and that he is alive and everything will be subject to Christ. And so our life and labor together to be this radical community of Jesus uh, has just massive implications, okay, for the world and uh, eternally. And so Paul is communicating this far-reaching, massive vision uh, and and it's so critical that this gets into our bones. So this message, much like last week, is not meant to be a, what do I do next? How do I do this? I, it is meant to be a, a a revelation from God that burns through you and changes the trajectory of your life uh, out of a theology, out of, out of scripture, and because uh, God's calling us to something so Radical and powerful and glorious and wonderful in terms of being the church of Jesus Christ. So uh, if anything is going to give you fire and hope, it is going to be uh, Paul and the book of Ephesians. And so, uh, and I'm very much, I, I'm looking forward to the scorecard changing of how we define success through uh, actually how we're doing with bridge building across races and cultures and genders and ethnicities. And let me invite you again, as I did last week, that there's a companion resource uh, that we have available. I think it's very important for you to to read and ponder and prayerfully look at it's called six marks of a church culture that deeply changes lives. And if anything happening in, in all these crises cascading upon the churches, we've got to get quite serious about discipleship. and we need to, again, a, what kind of vision a vision for the kind of culture we're building in our churches and it looks at six different marks as we build a culture that deeply transforms people. So you can get that at emotionallyhealthy.org slash churchculture, emotionallyhealthy.org slash churchculture. Let me invite you to pick that up uh, at the end of this podcast. So now let me invite you to sit back, relax, let the Word of God wash over you, uh, and let it sink deep into your soul. God bless you. Enjoy this message. Please be seated, everybody, and go with me to uh, the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're in a series on Ephesians, and actually this is the fifth message of it. And so if you've missed a couple, you want to probably pick up the CD. Most importantly, I want to encourage you to to be reading through Ephesians in your own devotional times with God and meditating on it. And, you know, every verse of Scripture is bottomless, and Ephesians is no exception. It's just an unbelievably majestic, phenomenal, rich book. And uh, so, and we're actually memorizing a a, a verse together. Now again, the theme of the whole series is entering the stream of the love of God. And uh, today we'll go into chapter three. And so, you know, this is a verse we're memorizing in 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 chapter three. It's kind of the center of the book. It's actually going to be the the next message of the series. And I I hope some of you took that little card and uh, you'll get it again, you know, next week, a little card, memory verse. And I pray that you may have power. And the whole word power is a big theme in Ephesians, that you may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And that's really Paul's goal, and then there's all kinds of implications of that. And So again, I hope you're memorizing that and meditating on that and pondering it uh, at home. If you're not, I want to encourage you to start doing it. I'm giving you four months to memorize the verse, all right? And um, I think that's enough time. And so here's what we've been so far. In a little summary. We began by talking about your new identity in Christ from chapter one. And the fact that God's chosen you. God's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. It's actually verse three of chapter one. It's kind of the summary of the whole book. And then it goes on about this. You're not, you've left the world. You've been chosen out of the world and you're different. And you've been set apart to be holy and whole by his love. And you're beloved. You're deeply loved by God. You've been forgiven. You've been delivered from slavery. You've been adopted as his son and his daughter once you've received Christ. And now the Holy Spirit's come inside of you and sealed you, and you are the glories of his richest inheritance. And that was the whole first message. Then we talked about your new power, and the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And Paul praises into the Ephesians uh, this enormous power, and, and the power that resurrected Christ, seated them in the heavenly realms. And Paul says that, and he tries to picture all these words, mega, mega, mega power is for you and in you for who believe to so transform you and change you into a very different kind of person than you began with. And then we talked about, uh, you're a masterpiece. In chapter 2, he gets into the fact you were dead, now you're alive. And he says, you're now a work of art. You've been created to be something totally new. You you, you are, you didn't, what you are now, you didn't exist before. And uh, you are a work of art. And we talked about that. And there's nobody like you on earth. And God's prepared something for you to be and something for you to do as a masterpiece. And then we talked about, the end of chapter 2 of Ephesians, that you're also part of a new international family. And... um, that uh, Remember, Ken actually quoted Ray Bakke last week, and that just as Roman cities had walls externally from enemies, they had internal walls. And uh, so you had cities that, in the Roman Empire that were divided. You had Romans in this community and Greeks and Parthians and Africans and, and, uh, and Jews, and they were separated by walls. And uh, that when you come to Christ, that Jesus has, has busted down those walls. And now there's one. you're part of a new international family, through Jesus Christ, through the blood of Christ, and something new has been created, he says, and a new race, a new being called Christian. And uh, so I'm, I'm never first an Italian or first a Peruvian or first a Colombian or first a Jew or first an Arab or first a Latino or African American. My core identity is more important than the culture to which I come from. And uh, I, I'm, I belong to Christ That I'm a Christian first. And Paul wants to make sure we get it. And so... There was never, in the Old Testament, up to this point, up to Jesus, there was never a vision of God's people being, uh, you know, as one body across race, culture, gender, and class. And so Paul now, as he goes into chapter 3, is going to drive this thing home. And uh, so I want to read it, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. And uh, it's it's really quite a passage. And uh, so we're calling, today's message is called Your New International Family, Part 2 because he is gonna drive this in, and I pray by God's grace we'll hopefully get it. Chapter three, verse one. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery, you'll notice mystery is used three times, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets, verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Your glory. All right. Now, Paul's talking about a mystery. You'll see this three, four times the mystery, the mystery. We're saying this is a a truth beyond what a human being could ever discover. It was obscure, but it's now God's given this revelation. He's unveiled the curtain, like this curtain behind me. It's opened up, and now the mystery is clear. And he then defines the mystery. He says, verse six this mystery is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles together and the gentiles are not second class. Now most of us in this room are gentiles. I have number, we have many many Jewish believers in our church, but I'm sure 90% of us are gentile believers. And he says gentiles us we are not second class. That with uh, the same legal and family status as Jewish believers. And understand prior to this, a gentile could only approach the God of Israel by first becoming a Jew. Getting circumcised, becoming culturally a Jew. This was a this was thousands of years. This was an incredible statement to make. It says that this mystery has been revealed that there is now, you don't have to get circumcised. Jesus has broken down the wall, and uh, you know, th- that approach is no longer necessary. And so what Paul's doing is he's, he's unpacking the radical nature of what God is doing, and uh, that the Jewish nation alone has been replaced by, I mean, it's still a place for the Jewish people, but this, God's people is now an international community. And uh, Paul knows this is so far-reaching. He says, no, that this interracial, international, worldwide family is more splendid than any other empire the world has ever known. And the church is a family that transcends nationality, your culture, your country, your social class, your color, your gender, your ethnicity, and your cultural, wherever you come from, barrier. All those barriers have been demolished. And uh, so... He says in verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, you know, we're like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. No, yeah, this, was, this, was, this, was, this was unbelievable. And uh, this is why they wanted to kill Paul, because it was so earth shattering. And so he refers to it in verse 8. He goes, he goes, I want to pre- I'm preaching about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And really, the word unsearchable is interesting. He says, he goes, I'm trying to get you to understand something It's unsearchable. It's so, it's like, think of an ocean that has no limit. He goes, when I'm speaking to you of Christ and all these implications, friends, you understand this is something inexhaustible. This is something infinite. This is something beyond understanding. This is like the ocean. We talk about Jesus and all the implications of Jesus. It's so deep. It's the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I'm trying to get you to open your eyes and see beyond the limits of how you see him and all the implications of what it means to really be a Christian. And he goes, I preach to you the unsearchable riches, the bottomless riches of Christ. And, uh, and then he's trying, because I'm trying to bring to light, to full expression, this, this incredible truth. Now, look at verse 10 here, chapter 3. He goes, his intent, God's purpose was that through The church, it's got a very big, it's not just you and Jesus. It's it's something God's doing that's bigger than just you and Jesus. It's forming this international family. Through the church, the manifold wisdom, that word manifold is like this brilliant, many colored this tapestry, this rainbow, this, this wisdom of God that is so unbelievably colorful and beautiful should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, and uh, this was God's eternal purpose. When he speaks of rules and authorities, every time in Ephesians, he's referring to demonic powers. Ephesians chapter 6. And, and, uh, and Paul's writing to these little house churches, you know, and around Asia Minor and Ephesus. And these little house churches were, were trivial and insignificant, and probably small, and they seemed so ineffective in this big Roman empire. And, and Paul says, you don't get it, guys. Your life, your being together as a church has a cosmic, spiritual importance far beyond earth because God's intent, God's purpose, the whole cross was to so transform you and us that it actually has transformed the inside out and melted these barriers and now you're part of an international family that crosses race and culture and class and gender and the audience in which you do this before are demonic powers and principalities. And the church, in a sense, our very existence is a reminder to the hostile demonic powers that their power has been broken. That Christ has risen and been exalted and broken the power of the demonic fully in this world. So much so that even racism and hatred between peoples has now been destroyed by the blood of Christ. And Paul says, you understand, your very life together as a people reveals how great God is and how great his plan of salvation is from all eternity. This was the eternal purpose. And all that power he talks about in chapter 1 that's been made available to you is for us in the church, that this would become a reality. It would actually get into us. And and, uh, Paul's trying to help us understand that our whole lives are to be driven by this truth. That's how big this is. Your whole life and my whole life is driven by Jesus and the implications that now something has happened that really never existed in human history or had the capacity to, and that God has an incredible plan and destiny for you personally and for his church. But you see, the church, this is, this is the church's potential. This is the church's calling. This is yours. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I mean, power, demonic powers, that their power is broken and that Christ is alive. Now, that's the potential of the church. And Paul said, I want you to get it. But you see, we can't, the church as a whole, we cannot reach our potential unless you reach yours personally. I mean, we're in this thing together, I can't do it alone. So I'm, I really have two themes for this morning as we unpack this practically in, in our lives. And uh, the two themes are basically truth and integrity. And I'm going to just try to go at this in, in a variety of ways as I have been praying and pondering, what, what does this mean for us and for you? And uh, so let, let's, you know, let's just begin with truth. Go, what does it mean for us to go forward? If that's our potential. I'm, I, I'm just going to summarize my first group of words around the word truth. If we're going to go forward. You know, as Archbishop Desmond Tutu, as we reflecting on South Africa, he wrote, he wrote a great statement in one of his books. He goes, the past refuses to lie down quietly. It's a great statement. And, uh, you know, racism, tension, prejudice, hatred, suspicion is a problem today that's no different than all of history. It's nothing new, uh, but it's very much a problem today. I, I just picked up Friday's New York Times, and there was three articles related to this issue of, uh, you know, reconciliation. Uh, one was about the uh, Columbia University incident with that professor that someone uh, the psychology and educational professor there at Columbia, that someone had left a noose, a hang noose dangling on her door this past week. Dr. Madonna Constantine, and uh, you know the whole uproar over that. I'm sure you saw it in the front page of the papers, a racial issue. You know there was a number of articles about on Friday's paper about the inside the Turkish psyche, traumatic issues, trouble a nation's sense of its identity. We have Turks and Armenians in our church, by the way. And uh, Turkey was formed 84 years ago out of, really, a genocide. And to get their identity, they killed, you know, there was 1.5 million Armenians slaughtered over a four to five year period. And uh, there was mass deportations and murders and executions of Greeks and and Kurds at that time as Turkey formed its nation. Well, if you go to Turkey, and I was with the the Turkish pastor this past week, uh, Turkey as a government refuses to acknowledge it. And it's not even in their history books. And so the United States government is now saying you can't come to NATO unless you acknowledge it. and It's a big controversy. And a Turkey, country, Turkey is going through a, a major changes. And I was with this Turkish pastor from Turkey, and he was saying, no, it definitely happened. He goes, but uh, you cannot read about it in any of our books. Always out of Turkey. And it's a real crisis for the country, but it's all about reconciliation. Interesting, isn't it? And uh, this is when you're talking to Armenians in our church. I hope you get a chance to speak with them someday. It's tremendous, tremendous. Um, and then the third article was about Australia. And Australia government, and and basically the whites of Australia, wrestling with their relationship with the indigenous people uh, of that, the Aborigines. And a whole big initiative called, you know, it says, lead article was Australian leader wants new reconciliation with Aborigines. So that's just one day's newspaper. I mean, this is, this is like so real all over the world. But obviously in our, in our own country today, United States, I mean, I mean in our, in I, you know, more and more studies have shown there's a trend going on in our country that there are more people living in Residentially segregated communities than 5, 10, 15 years ago. That there's a trend in our country they're tracing of people moving to communities with people like themselves. Now, obviously, New York City, which is quite different, um, we're a very unique phenomenon, especially here in Queens. But nationally, this is what's going on. It's a very strong trend. Public schools are increasingly segregated by race, another big trend nationwide. Uh, and they say the meaningful contact for cross-cultural contact of young people is actually diminishing, uh, especially in the school systems, and that the interaction for many white people with people of color is now more by virtual reality than actual experience. And uh, we live in a world, and, as you know, we make decisions all the time, don't we? Where do I look for an apartment? Where do I look for a home? Well race isn't race and culture's in there. You know Where do I stop late at night for gas or get a bite to eat? It's affected by this issue? Where do I send my child to school? It's very much an issue. And so racism exists outside the church, we know, but as well as inside the church. And it has for centuries. And, and, uh, and partly because of, you know, ignorance, partly because of a shallow discipleship model, which never gets to Ephesians chapter 3, and ignoring large portions of scripture, which are screaming our face. I mean, I think of South Africa, you know, in Apartheid and that whole thing that went down for you know, over 100 years, that was, all, that was all church people involved in that thing. You know, Rwanda, the 800,000-year-old massacre, that was Christians involved in that thing. There was a, a lot of Christians in those two, that tribal genocide. and The ethnic cleansing in, uh, in um, the Balkans was supposedly done by Serbian Christians. And uh, racism and slavery in the United States, our whole history, was, these were Christians defending it you know, in churches. United States as part of our own history. So, the racial and cultural and ethnic divide in our churches that we experience in the United States, it's almost like the norm. It's, it's, and we're, we're very, this is very rare to see what we see here. I was, in, I was speaking to some pastors from um, California and Colorado, and, and they, were, they were telling me that their state's very beautiful. If you've been to Colorado, it's a very beautiful place. Don't move there, but it's beautiful. You know? And California, oh man, beautiful California. I understand why they don't mind the earthquakes, you know. It's gorgeous. But Pastors are very frustrated uh, because they said, of our committed core of people that attend church, I mean, the committed core, they show up about 40 to 45% of the time on a Sunday. This is my committed core because they're out, they got their homes and lakes and they're they're out camping. The weather's always beautiful. They're hiking. Their life is about comfort. Their life's about pleasure and, you know, God fits in, but it's like, you know, but they've done studies. 45% of the time, so you can't build a church. It doesn't matter if you have a megachurch, because the truth is that Christ is not central to their whole lives. And so you're talking about racism, and this Ephesians 3 passage. They said, forget it. We can't even get there. I'm just trying to get them to show up and be committed. Now, let me tell you a a, a story, uh, of uh, an important story by a man named William Seymour. How many of you know the story of William Seymour on Azusa Street? William Seymour was a son of slaves. And uh, was born in 1870 in the Deep South in Louisiana, at a time when the Ku Klux Klan was very strong, and uh, blacks had no opportunity for formal education at that time. And uh, he became a Christian very early on, and uh, had a real sense of a call from God to leadership and pastoring. And but he eventually left his roots in the South and tried to move north, where there was more of a you know openness to blacks and opportunity. And he had such a vision of the church as a community that reconciled races. He saw it in scripture so clearly, that was his vision. So when he moved north, the church was divided obviously by race, you had African Methodist churches and you had white Methodist churches. He actually joined a white Methodist Episcopal church over and against an AME church that was near his house because this church was seeking racial reconciliation in the late 1800s. And he believed that the power of the spirit if it was gonna visit would result in reconciliation. And so he joins this church. And eventually he becomes a pastor and evangelist that travels and goes to Bible school in Houston, Texas. Uh, but he couldn't attend classes because a black could not attend the class. But, they were, but he was allowed to sit outside the door and his door was open. He could listen in and learn some things. And, uh, and just you know, he would do, he'd actually preach and they would do meetings. But they would not allow blacks and whites at the altar together. No intermingling of races. And blacks would sit over there in the back, whites over here in front. Christian meetings. It this was, this was, this was just the norm. It's just the way the country was. And so eventually he was invited to Los Angeles to pastor this little church, little holiness church. And because he was known as a man of deep prayer, very godly, and he went. And uh, in the midst of he's preaching on Acts 2 4 about the Pentecost coming, power of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit falls on this church in, in incredible power. And people falling down on their knees, speaking, speaking in tongues, you know, sudden joy. His, his future wife, his fiancee, who does not play piano, sits down at the piano. And she sings. Now, she's playing perfect piano. She sings in six languages that she doesn't know. And she interprets what she sings. I mean, it was that kind of unbelievable event. And you, and, and so from this little crowd of basically poor people in Azusa Street, California, people began to come from all over, first the United States and all over the world. And huge crowds. It sat 800 people. They rented a place in Azusa Street. Huge crowds, packed, blacks and whites and... And folks from you know, India and China, but, but it was, the, the color barrier was just destroyed. There was none. No. And they would have meetings in the morning, midday, and evening. It was, and and just, it just kept going on. And it actually went on for three years in Azusa Street. Huge crowds from virtually every race, every ethnicity, and every nationality, and every social class, rich and poor. Remember the Titanic? You saw the Titanic movie, how the poor were downstairs? Do you understand? That's how deeply stratified society was in that day. Do you, that was all abolished. The Titanic was shot at Azusa Street because the Spirit had come in such presence and power. And, um, and, and so this miracle that William Seymour had prayed for for years, actually, that he, he knew it was going to take the power of the Spirit, it actually happened. A revolutionary type of Christian community was born. And they experienced it and they saw it. One journalist wrote this. The color line was washed away in the blood. Now, again, not only were people coming to Azusa Street, they were going out as well. They were going to India and China and Africa. And Seymour understood the implications of this baptism or drenching of the Holy Spirit and tongues. It was about interracial reconciliation and community. That's what it was about. And and he wrote this, and, and he wrote, the people are all melted together like one lump one bread, all one body in Christ Jesus. There's no Jew or Gentile, bond or free in Azusa Street. God is not a respecter of person. So in those early years, again, Seymour was the leader. And uh, whites would come and repent of their racism and work alongside him. And historians have written that the interracial miracle and the melting of these barriers was more astonishing than the miracle of tongues. Tongues. This openness extended to social classes as well. Again, back to rich and poor and middle class, including women. Remember, women, they weren't even voting at this point. Women didn't have any legal rights. Women emerged out of Azusa Street as powerful leaders and began to go forth. That was a whole new phenomenon as well. So, and he wrote this, that, you know, the primary evidence of the God's spirit, wrote Seymour, was his love. 1 Corinthians 13. Now, the ending, however, is sad. At the, end of the, at the middle of the end of the third year, Seymour invited a man named Charles Parham, a white man, a very prominent leader in the church nationwide, because to lead large-scale, area-wide revivals. Understand, Seymour's got this vision of Ephesians 3. He's got this vision. So he brings in this, one of the most famous guys, Parham, to come in. And, um, see, he knew, Seymour knew that as a, as a black person in a dominant white society, he needed partnerships to be able to bring this nationwide and, and worldwide. And so he, he invited this guy, Parham, to come. And uh, Parham showed up at the first meeting. And he was aghast at the racial intermingling. And he actually, his first sermon, he, he talked about how God is sick to his stomach at what's going on here. And he would not, God could not stand for such animalism. And so at that point, the Azusa Street mission split on racial lines. And so a few hundred whites, not all, went up the street and began their Pentecostal thing. And, and actually, the whole emphasis of Pentecostalism was about tongues, not reconciliation. So when you think of Pentecostal, we think tongues, 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 tongues. That was never Seymour's vision. Interesting, you read his journals. Because a number of people could live with tongues, but they could not live with this revolutionary interracial fellowship that Seymour was talking about. And he insisted that it flows from it. And the Pentecostal movement, as we know today, it's split along racial lines for many, many years. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Seymour died, at the end of the story, he died at very young, at age 52, in 1922. And he died in almost total obscurity and slandered. And, and uh, he died alone. And, uh, you know, following Christ, but he died medically of a heart attack. But many historians say he died really of a broken heart and uh, it was so intense the opposition to this There would have been lynchings if they had kept going that's how intense this thing was touching something so it was touching powers and authorities in the heavenly realms it was that deep now it's interesting because Jean, uh, philip jenkins a great church historian there are now 4 he says there are 400 million pentecostals in the world today that came out of azusa street that powerful moment And that they expect by the year 2040, there will be over 1 billion Pentecostals worldwide. That's how powerful that visitation was. That's the truth, isn't it? That's the truth that we have to be honest about if we're going to go forward. You know what the truth is? It's easier to think about South Africa than think about here. Truth is, oppression, injustice, hatred, it's still so alive in New York. I mean, I know folks in our church that you know, share with me that they can't go buy a house in certain neighborhoods. Now, in New York, because of the color of their skin. They know it. Some of you I know probably would never marry a person of a certain skin color. or You wouldn't allow your child to do it either. The Church of Jesus Christ, the truth is, largely ignores the issue. You go through seminaries across the country, friends, this is not even a required course. This is an option if God has called you to it. In every seminary across the country, there is a course in it, but very few people take it. The history of each person's prejudice goes so deep that the truth is I sometimes feel hopeless about it. As I think the demonic powers won on this one because people don't even care about it. they got enough problems just trying to make it through the day. The truth is that when we talk about this issue, we're talking about demons and powers and principalities that are extremely powerful. And the truth is I prefer, and many of us prefer, not to get into that mess because we have enough on our plate. And I don't want to feel responsible and go into the unknown. Who knows what's going to happen? And the truth is we have fears, and we need to face those fears about what it means to get to know people's story who are very different than us, who come from a whole different place. And uh, the truth is many of our young people, you know what, many of our young people that I talk to, they are longing for adults. With the, they, they have a passion for it, who have the courage to break the generational sin of barriers and racism and ethnocentrism and, and division through the power of Jesus and the truth There are longing for adults that will do it. That's just a little bit of the truth. I'm sure there's much more to the truth. But I want to break it down secondly into but the, because the past refuses to lie down quietly. It's a great quote. But that is the past, not just outside the church. It's the past inside the church. And we have to acknowledge that. It is the truth. So secondly, I just want to talk about integrity because the issue really is about integrity. And, again, this has many facets as well. I, you know, The church can't have integrity if we as individuals don't have integrity. Right? I mean, so we have a revelation, right? This is a revelation of Ephesians 3. God's intent was that through the church, you know, the manifold wisdom of God, that, that all these barriers have been melted down. That's the revelation of God. And it should be made known to the powers and principalities of, of the air. This was his, according to his eternal purpose. God purposed this from the beginning of time. And Paul's saying this mystery has now exploded into life. He says, Ephesians, grab it, break it. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the horrors that we as believers should be outraged about? What should outrage us? That story should outrage us, shouldn't it, that I read to you? But who are the second-class citizens in our society? You know, when I hear, every time I hear the name illegal aliens, I don't care what your politics are. People are made in God's image. No one's an alien people made in God's image, you know. And so whatever your color skin, whatever your, your culture. In Jesus' family, there are no second-class citizens. We don't allow anybody to be treated second-class. And integrity is to ask, what did my family and my culture hand to me about other races? That's integrity. What, what was I handed, and where am I really at? And uh, what am I watching or not watching because it's too painful? You know, I watched this... Uh, I watched the, the movie Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Many of you, I'm sure, have read the book or seen the movie. It was painful to watch the treatment of Native Americans in the late 1800s. We have some Native Americans in our church. It's very painful. But, I mean, it's, integrity is I watch it because it's true, even though I don't want to see it. And I left there. It wasn't a happy movie. I walked out. Oh, wonder, I was depressed, Don. I was really depressed when it was over. And, uh, you know, watching a movie like Gandhi or even Tyler Perry's movies, which are very insightful, you know, the African-American community and, you know, but it just takes time to even get into the world, another world, and, 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 and the integrity to say, I'm interested because I'm a Christian. It matters to me. And, uh, and we have integrity. You know, I don't, I'm not committed to reconciliation, but I treat my wife like trash. That's integrity. You know, how often we do violence to people, just in general, you know, teachers. You know, violence is more than just, you know, physically assaulting someone. Every time we, we demean somebody, it's violent. You know, when a teacher humiliates a student, that's violent. When a supervisor treats an employee as a disposable means of economics, it's violent. When doctors treat patients as an object, it's violent. When racists regard people different and secondary or less than, it's violent. When even Christians or we, we view people differ, differently than this as, as kind of like them. It's violent. Integrity is to be yourself. i say you, it, it, it's being, it's being true. Look, Paul, I mean, I, I don't have time to expound on this, but you'll know as Paul says you know, a number of times in this text, verse 2, you've heard about God's grace, verse 2, that was given to me. and verse 7 he goes, I, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me. And then he, he refers himself in verse 8, I'm less than the least of all God's people. I mean, think about that. I don't know. You know, Paul had an tr- enormous sense of privilege, grace given to me, and, and he says, I'm the least of all the saints. I know, look around this room. I mean, look at these. He said, I'm the least of all these people. you probably say, I don't even like these people. I'm less than the least of them. I, I think I'm in the middle. <laughs> uh, less than the least, you know? And uh, you see, Paul had a tremendous sense of who he was. Humility and authority, tremendous sense. And so, you see, if we don't know who we are, we find our identity either by being superior to people or being inferior to people. That's what happens, because we don't have a true sense of self. And, and so it's so interesting, you can be a Christian and despise other Christians. So different than Paul, or despise other people. And uh, so my, my, I don't have a sense of who I am, so I have to put you down to feel good about myself. and I bolster my identity by excluding you. And I turn cultural differences into moral issues. And uh, you see, if I don't know who I am with integrity, I can't let you be you because it's threatening to me. So I got to put you down. Your differences. But if I have a great sense of integrity of myself, my true self in Christ, I can let you be you and not have to change you, or exclude you, or abandon you, or assimilate you. And uh, you know, I think I, I hear all the time, ah, oh, you, know, you know, Spanish congregation they are always kissing and hugging. They're so emotional. You know, ah, oh, white people they're so cold and icy. You know, and ah, oh, you know, those Presbyterians they're so stiff. You know, and, Dead liturgy and all oh, the Episcopals with their candles and altar boys. I mean, can you believe it? You know, and and all oh, the Pentecostals, you know, screaming on the floor, you know. And oh, they let long-haired people in, they let short, and they let people like, rockers and gothics, and you know, they dance, square dance, or who you knows, merengue, who you knows what they're doing, you know. They drink, they have a glass of wine, that did oh, you know, we just have, we have opinions about everybody. And uh, because we don't know who we are, so I find out who I am by putting you down. And, uh, or I have this inferiority, this sense that I'm always failing, you know, I, this nagging sense I'm deficient. And I know the feeling. It drives us. And how many of us, we keep going for degrees, because you know, I feel like a failure. If I get enough degrees, I'll know something. Because you know? uh, I'm, never, I'm never good enough. And so even the inferiority drives me. It just drives me. And uh, there's no integrity in that. The integrity is to live the life that God has given you. Integrity is to be you, your true self in Christ. That's integrity. And uh, how many of you come from families where they've said to you, hey, remember who you are as you walk out that door? Your family said to you, you know, I heard those words, you know. Basically, what they're saying is, you know, you better live, you better live our life. Don't disgrace us. Remember who you are. Say, no, who I am is my true self in Christ. The new power and new identity, and part of a new international family. Integrity is to be faithful to the life God has given me and not be a coward and live the life that you want me to live. That's Integrity. And um, there's a great Hasidic tale, I've said it before, by, um, that it reveals our tendency to want to live somebody else's life. Rabbi Susia, at the end of his life, when he was an old man, he, he said this, in the coming world, they will not ask you, why were you not Moses? They will ask you, why were you not you? Why did you try to live somebody else's life? What I'm saying is that this dream of an Ephesians community, he's, Paul's talking about here, if you don't know who you are, it's all a dream. Because you've got to have a sense of integrity with yourself first. Then you can allow people to be themselves and there's space for both. And uh, you see, if I, if I claim my true self and who I am in Christ, then I can let you claim yours and don't have to annihilate you. And, and uh, how are we going to make promises? We're gonna make, if, we don't, if, if we live unfaithfully to ourselves, we're hurting other people. We're damaging other people. We make promises we can't keep, and we're building a church on, a, on, 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 on flimsy material. And we can read Ephesians 3, and we can memorize it, but it's all theory, and it never gets in deep. So, again, my comment to myself was, how can the church have integrity if I don't? That's why I'm coming after you. I'm coming after me. And that's why Paul says in verse 1 and verse 13, I gladly suffer for this. Paul suffered for this. They're suffering for this. But he says, I do it joyfully. Don't be discouraged, because I have integrity, and I'm living in truth, and I've gotten free from other people's lies and expectations. So yeah, verse thirteen. You know what he says? He says, you know, I, I don't be discouraged. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So yes, you'll be misunderstood. they will be suffering. Yes, it's going to cost you money. Yes, it's going to cost you time. Yes, your friendships are going to be affected. Yes, it may affect where you live, and even if you go and live somewhere else, you'll oh this this reality of this text that God's intent was this melting of one international people informs your whole life. It drives your life because it's on God's heart. It's not something I just pick up once in a while if I feel like it. It's my life because it's the gospel, knowing God and being reconciled to him and across and then with other people. It's not convenient. It's emotionally draining. It's very complex and it's very slow, but we embrace this vision of Ephesians 3 of reconciliation of a new international family because it's the heart of the gospel. It's not something, and it's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So a Paul's saying. I pray you get the revelation and the mystery of the gospel. And, uh, and our whole life is thus impacted and driven by this truth. Whew. What a text. All right. Wow. I want to worship him. Come on forward and look at verse 12 for a minute. You know, secular history, if you read, I, I love history focuses on wars, and great leaders, and territories, and rising and falls of empires. The Bible focuses on small, apparently insignificant people, but God, the Bible concentrates on this new international, interracial, interclass, intercultural community called the church. That God's passionate for a church that really is a gift to the world around us, sets people free to live in truth and integrity. And uh, he closes with verse 12. He says, we, through faith in him, we, have, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. I want you to, see where verse, look at verse 12. In him, Jesus, and through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You know, up to this point, the high priest of Israel, once a year, could go into the Holy of Holies with freedom and confidence and approach God. Once Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, split open the curtain of the temple, we, through Jesus, have freedom and access. Just walk into the presence of Almighty God together on equal footing through the blood of Christ, through his righteousness alone. We have freedom. He says, I love this verse. We have freedom and confidence and boldness. So, And that's what the power of the Holy Spirit's all about, friends, to melt these barriers down between us and God and us and each other. It's a wonderful vision. Let's all stand. And I just like us that, let's sing this song. What's it? It's called Agnes D. I put the words up, Mike. This song, you know, when I, I think of the power of the Holy Spirit coming, you know, as Seymour experienced in 1906 in Azusa Street, Los Angeles. You know? Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Now, history's got some sad truth in it, but what Almighty means He's got everything in a grip. And so we come and we have freedom and access to the Almighty. I want to invite you, you know, ask forgiveness for your sin. Just come into the presence with freedom and approach the Lord God Almighty. For he reigns, friends. He reigns in wolves. And he's come to set us free, all of us here. William Seymour in 1906, in those early days. For him, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the word means drenching or being soaked in the Holy Spirit. Now, you receive the Holy Spirit when you come to Christ. There's nothing to be drenched in the Holy Spirit. And it was that, he saw, which just was filled you with the love of Christ. You know, it, it's hatred, suspicion, feeling superior or inferior, relationally. But divisions and color lines and barriers just melted. It was just supernatural from God. So, I, you know, I, this is very deep. So as we close here, I, I just, I want to invite you, you know, if you, the communion table's open. I mean, communion's all about being one, isn't it? One loaf. We belong to one body through the blood of Christ. We come and partake communion together, but you may just recognize you've got things in your heart. Oh, God, drench me with your Holy Spirit. My own, I hate my own family. My, my own family members I hate. I'm violent with them, you know, let alone everybody else. And that's what God's all about, isn't it? That we might have freedom and access with him and with others. So, friends, let's get free in truth and integrity. And God, lead us through this amazing, what this all means for us as we walk this out. So I'm going to close. the altar team today to your left. I want to invite you to come and pray. Come, come for prayer. Let him anoint you with oil, receiving from God. And uh, ultimately, we'll stay here and lead us in worship. Let's keep it quiet in this room if we could, all right? Bow with me for just a moment. Maybe just open up your hands up towards heaven or just receive a blessing as we go from here. So, Lord, may your face shine upon us. You see your people in this little church in this big world in Queens, New York. Who are we, oh God? May your face shine upon us, Lord. May you shower from heaven rivers of the Holy Spirit to drench us so deeply that the deepest inferiorities, superiorities, hatreds, animosities, insecurities, Lord, let them be melted by the love of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. So drench us, Lord, we truly would live out being a new creation, being free to be the men and women you've called us to be, living our our true lives in Christ, not somebody else's agenda for us. And Lord, that we may truly be this new family created in Christ Jesus as something totally new that transcends nation and race and culture and class and gender. Oh, Jesus, let your face shine upon us as we go. And may we bring a blessing as we leave this place wherever we go. In Jesus' name.